We're walking through the book of Genesis, which is made up of these two main parts. And the first part begins in the garden, where we watch humanity spiral downward in self-destruction. And it ends in the Tower of Babel, where a rebellious humanity is scattered by God. Then the second part of Genesis zooms in and focuses on just one family. And right in the middle is this story that links the two parts of Genesis together and helps us understand what the whole book is all about. So how do we get from the Tower of Babel to the story here in the middle? Well, after the scattering at Babel, there's this genealogy, and it follows one of the tribes all the way down to this one guy named Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. And God starts making all these promises to Abraham, like he's going to bless him and give him a ton of kids. And he says that through him and his family, all the nations of the earth are now going to find God's blessing. So basically, God is trying to restore humanity back to the goodness of the garden and to his original intentions for the world. So it's like his rescue plan for humanity. And that's why the whole second half of Genesis is about this one family. And so you have, you have Abraham, and then he has a son, Isaac, who has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And to each generation, God renews his promise to bless them and all nations through them. So because of this promise to use this family to rescue the world, it's pretty easy to read these stories as examples of how to be a good person. But actually, for the most part, this family is totally dysfunctional. So for example, let's go back to Abraham. This whole story is about God giving him and his wife Sarah a family, but two different times. He basically gives Sarah away to other men by denying that she's even his wife. And then Sarah gets impatient about having a son, and so she makes Abraham sleep with her servant girl, which then causes all of these other problems in the family. So they get really old, and you begin to think that there's no way they're going to have a kid of their own. But then, miraculously, they do. It's Isaac. And Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and it seems like things are going pretty good. But Jacob... The younger brother wants the family's inheritance, which belongs to Esau, the older brother. So he devises a plan where he's going to steal it from his father, Isaac, who at this point in the story is now old and blind. Which who does that horrible stealing from your blind father? Yeah, and then he just takes off. So Jacob goes on from there to have 12 sons, big family. But Jacob loves his 11th son, Joseph, way more than all the others. And so he gives him the special technicolor dream coat and his brothers because of this come to hate him so much so that they plan on killing him but they don't they instead just sell him as a slave down in egypt now while in egypt through this crazy series of events joseph goes from being in a prison cell to becoming the second in command there and so later on the the whole middle east falls into this food shortage and joseph's brothers they come down to egypt looking for food and then when they get there Who should they find as the ruler of the whole land? It's Joseph, that guy they sold into slavery. But he actually saves them from starving to death. And so here you have it. These are the great-grandchildren of Abraham who have done this heinous act to their brother. But God has transformed their evil into something good. And that's exactly what Joseph says here in the last paragraph of the entire book. He says, you guys planned all of this for evil, but God planned it for good. 
to save people's lives. Now, these words, they conclude the book because they actually summarize the message of the whole story so far. Humans keep choosing evil, and we are thinking they're, they're screwing up God's plan, but he keeps turning their evil back into good. And somehow, he's going to use this family to restore humanity back to the garden. Well, that was a four-minute summary of the book of Genesis. We are reading through the Bible together as a church, and we are finishing up today on, the book, on that book. And I thought that would be a brilliant way of surveying up to where we are and also exposing you to a wonderful ministry um, called, the, you know, Bible something. And it's part of our app for if you're reading through the Bible, you can click on some of those uh, lessons to help summarize. So they're available right there on that Bible app. God, at the end of Genesis, it is, is repeated twice for, purpose, for a purpose. It says, and, and now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Those, those phrases, it's repeated because it summarizes not just the story of Joseph, but also the whole story of the book of Genesis, the whole redemptive story that's going on. And particularly in, in the Joseph story and actually the Abrahamic story that we've been looking at up to this point, two things are consistent throughout those, those family generations. One, that progressively and repeatedly, each, each family is falling more and more uh, into sin and away from God and his purpose and jeopardizing the rescue plan that God has through that family of Abraham. The second thing that's consistent throughout the storyline is that God steps in and remains faithful to that family and to his promise. With each, of the, with, with, with each generation, he's going to repeat the promise that he makes and makes sure though that that promise will come about because God's redemptive plan will not be thwarted by human sin. Now, when we look at today, we're going to see that last section uh, being played out in the life of Joseph. The key to understand the redemptive plan, especially particularly in the life in the family of Abraham, is to know this, that the Jews, the Jewish, the, is, the Hebrews are to find their identity, to find their identity in being sacred. They are, find, they are to find their identity in being sacred. And sacred means to be set apart for a purpose. It means to be called out for a meaning. It's, it means to be like nothing else. And that's where they're to find themselves. That's how, that what gives them motive and purpose in life. Um, sacred, a good example of, of something that's sacred would be a lighthouse. A lighthouse is set apart for something very special, to save lives. It is not like any other houses. It, it, it is something very special. And sometimes a lighthouse would lose that, its ability to do that. Sometimes they, they, just through neglect, it takes a lot of work to work a lighthouse, not like other houses. It's, it require, it's a maintenance uh, sort of thing. And then, and then the other thing that happens sometimes is the lighthouse loses its vision its purpose, its meaning. And it finds itself becoming, I, I don't know, a tourist spot where it sells cookies in the shape of, of a lighthouse or sells trinkets that are a lighthouse. 
All the while, sailors drown because they lost their purpose and meaning. Israel, Israel is that lighthouse. That's their, that's their purpose in life. They're to be a lighthouse to everything and everyone. They are called out. They are supposed to be doing this. They're to reflect God's will in the expression of trusting him for provision and protection. They are supposed to be uh, modeling what it means to be a follower of Yahweh so that they would bring envy to other people and those other people would be drawn, into the, drawn towards them just like a lighthouse draws you to them so that they might be invited into that community and be saved. They're supposed to stand out so that people are drawn to them so that they might be invited in to be saved. But in the storyline, they're not sacred. They've lost their meaning and purpose. They're being actually conformed to their culture. And so in the story of Joseph, there, there's more written about Joseph than any other character in the book of Genesis. And why is that? Because it is a story of profound importance. It is the story of God rescuing the rescue plan. It is him saving the salvation. It is, it is him setting apart the people that are supposed to be set apart since they aren't. Because there's four generations at this point and they're descending. There won't be a fifth generation. And there won't be salvation. There will be humanity lost at sea. And so God is stepping in and because... All, you know, all the angels are crying out for the love of God and for the love of man. Do something. Do something, God. And you might think, well, just start over. But he can't. God promised that his salvation plan would be with this family. And so he must stay within this family and make sure this happens, but without ever manipulating in the context of violating free will. God's going to make this plan work using humans, but without violating free will. He'll do that using big words here, right? Soft determinism, soft determinism. And the idea of soft determinism in theology is the acknowledgement that human actions are influenced by causations, but at a point where it doesn't violate free will, okay? Decisions are made by different causes, but those causes are not to the point where they add unfairly influence free will. So there's a couple ways that we practice soft determinism, especially as parents or in our experience sometimes ourselves. It's uh, one is pre-existing preferences. So if I were to put down a platter, two platters of food right here, and one had uh, brisket and one had tofu, um, I would probably be able to guess for many of you that you would eat the brisket and not the tofu. Just just knowing you. It's just Texas. That's what we do. It's what we do well. And I know that preference. And so, so I sit down down. If I'm a gambling man, I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is what they're going to eat because it's taking advantage of pre-existing preferences. Now, I could, I could turn up the, the soft determinism to a medium determinism. And let's say you go without food for two days and then you put out just the tofu. What would you eat then? Nothing. Yeah, you'd still like... <laughs> still, Try four days. Let's see what. But you get the idea. Like I'm, I'm take, at some point, I'm taking away human freedom. Soft determinism respects human freedom. The other way that uh, soft determinism, determinism is expressed in our own life and the way God works with us is by limiting our freedom to put us in a place to protect us from our own 
choices. So in our neighborhood, I'm sure there's some houses in your neighborhood as well. On the busy streets, some families have realized they can't trust their children in the front yard. And so they put a fence in the front yard. That's not to keep bad people out. It's to keep their kids from making bad choices. And so they have, they have uh, quarantined them to the front yard. They have put them in time out. You can only stay in the front yard. It's not a violation of freedom. It's just a limitation of those freedoms. It's soft determinism. And so in God's sovereign power, that's what we're going to look here, God's sovereign power being displayed and how he's going to fix this problem. And what's the problem? Left to themselves, the family of Abraham, there will be no fifth generation. There will be no family. They are not sacred. They're not set apart in any way. And God's plan for them is to be a nation of priests. And in another 40 years, they won't be a nation, and they are certainly not priests. And so God, in his answer to this, will quarantine them. He will put them someplace for 400 years, let's say. He's going to build a fence around them so that they can only make certain amount of choices. He will put this group of 70, the fourth generation of Abraham, in timeout. And they will only be able to marry and associate with the people of faith. That solution is Egypt. He will bring them to Egypt. And here's why. Egyptians hate everyone. They hate especially Hebrews. When Joseph, if you know, I'm assuming you know the story, uh, you could read that, it'll help, and then you can rewatch this sermon. But Joseph, when he brings his brothers in and has a meal at the palace, now that he's in charge, it says this, they served, they served Joseph by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with uh, him by themselves. And why is that? Because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews. Not would not eat with Hebrews, but could not eat with Hebrews because that is detestable for Egyptians. Egyptians look at Hebrews and they go, tofu, not going to touch it. Could not eat with them. Now, it says this three different times. Here's another way they say it. Uh, A second time that said, this is later on when the 70 70 members of the family are going to come and introduce themselves to Pharaoh. And Joseph says this. He gives them their lines. He says, when Pharaoh calls upon you, calls you in and asks, he says, what is your occupation? You should answer by this. Say, your servants have tended livestock since our boyhood on. As a matter of fact, just as our fathers did. We are generations of shepherds. Then you will be allowed to settle in a region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. Boy, did I tell you they hate everyone? So what we have here is Egyptians, they, are, they hate Hebrews, and they think shepherds are detestable, so it's like tofu with tofu marinate all over it. And because of that, what's going to happen here is this, this will be the fence that God builds for them. And this is how they're going to live in this quarantine. And the quarantine is called Egypt. If he can get them to Egypt, there's the back of my fence. If he can get them to Egypt, they won't have a lot of moving around to do. They can't get lost in the culture because the culture doesn't want anything to do with them. So how does he get them to Egypt? How does he get the 70 to Egypt? 
Well, that's not all that difficult, actually. A famine comes, and, and the, people are, the only food that's in the land is in Egypt, so he's going to send them there. But that's not the problem. The problem comes where how do you get them to show up, and when they get there, they're in good standings with the Pharaoh. Okay? And because the Pharaoh doesn't like Hebrews, and he doesn't like shepherds. But to get Goshen, he's got to get them good in with Pharaoh. So it has to be a positive Pharaoh. And how they do that, they're going to communicate in a mystic language that Pharaoh already believes in. And that mystic value system is dreams. He, they're going to give Pharaoh, God will give Pharaoh a dream. And he's going to need someone to interpret the dream. And that's where Joseph comes in. Joseph will be needed to interpret that dream. And what's really great about the dream is it's a very popular dream for Pharaoh because it includes him making a lot more money and more power. Brisket. He's going to give him a brisket dream. So all he needs now he needs to get Joseph over here to Pharaoh to have an audience with him to interpret the dream. How does God do that? Well, God, the, the way to get to the Pharaoh is probably through his most trusted person, and that is the cupbearer. And the cupbearer is like the food taster. He's the most trusted person in, in Pharaoh's life because it, the way to poison a king or the way to kill a king is by poisoning him. And so this cupbearer, this head, head butler, whoever he might be, he doesn't leave the palace because he does, the, the Pharaoh can't trust him leaving the palace. And so he's always within you know, the confines of the Pharaoh. So how do you get the person talking to Pharaoh to introduce Joseph to Pharaoh about interpreting kings? Interpreting dreams. Well, what you do is you get the cupbearer to go to jail. If we can get that cupbearer in jail, and then maybe Joseph could meet him in jail. We could get the cupbearer falsely accused of something. Joseph could meet him there, and he's falsely accused of things, and they could, like, bond over that. And then God could give the cupbearer a dream, and, and, and then Joseph could interpret that. And, and then the cupbearer would know later on when he meets with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has a dream that he can't interpret, that Joseph is the guy. Okay. Well, how do you, how do you, I understand if he gets falsely accused, he's going to go to How do we get Joseph to jail? And it's got to be the right jail, by the way. Well, it turns out the guy running the jail is a guy named Potiphar. And if Joseph worked for Potiphar, then he might be able to be falsely accused and end up in that same jail. So God arranges for Joseph to work for Potiphar. And in, in the context of, of working for that, Potiphar has a wife who in every single lifetime, in every possible creation uh, possibility, she's a sensuous woman. And she will always go after whoever her husband's hiring. And so sure enough, Joseph is approached and he denies her and a woman scorned. You know how that goes. And so she accuses him of attempted rape where she, he ends up in Potiphar's jail, falsely accused, able to interpret dreams. But how does, how does Joseph get in Potiphar's house in the first place? Well, God, maybe, I don't know. Why don't, we don't know that part of the story, but maybe God provides Potiphar, you know, a great year where he has to buy more slaves and, and, and Joseph ends up on that, on that slave block, right? And that's where Joe is. And then when Joseph's up for uh, auction, Potiphar sees him and, well, okay, have you ever seen Star Wars, right, the really good one, where it's like, the, you know, this is the slave you want. That's the slave I want. You'll pay whatever you want. 
I will pay whatever I have to. And that's what happens. It's not a violation of freedom because Potiphar's going there anyway to get a slave. So he gets Joseph as a slave. But how do you get Joseph on that slave block, on that auction block? Well, it turns out that the slave route, right, the, the, the railroad that goes, the railroad that goes into Egypt goes right by a place called Dotham. This is where it gets really hard. He's, you've got to get Joseph to Dotham. How does that happen? Well, he's going to go see his brothers who are herding the sheep, but they herd their sheep in Shechem. And that's where you're supposed to because that's where their family has, that's where their fields are, is in Shechem. But the problem is, is the, the rail stop is in Dotham. And if Joseph doesn't get to Dotham, he's going to, if he gets there late and misses the train or he doesn't get there at all, all salvation history is lost. Now, getting the brothers over to Dotham instead of Shechem, that's no big deal because all you have to do for those guys is just get them bored and then they're going to wander off. Or maybe there's free beer in Dotham and so they go there for that. Here's the problem. Here's the problem is Joseph is in Shechem and he needs to get to Dotham so his bloodthirsty brothers could try to kill him or sell him on that train stop. This is right here the hinge of history. This is where it all hangs. And if you look, when Joseph goes looking at in Shechem for his brothers, there's a man that's standing there out of nowhere, and he tells them to go to Dotham. And a lot of your Bible commentaries will say this about that man. This is how important it is, that that man was an angel. God sent an angel to tell Joseph that his brothers are in Dotham so that he could catch that slave train so that he could be on that auction block, so that he could be hired by Potiphar, so his wife could accuse him to send him in this jail, so he'd meet the cupbearer. The cupbearer would tell him about Pharaoh and tell the dream would happen so everyone would end up in Egypt. Now, you might be thinking, sending an angel because all of this matters right here? This is, where, this is the tension of the story? That's kind of cheating. It's God's creation, so he can send an angel anywhere he wants. Here's an interesting thing. How do you get brothers to hate their brother, their youngest brother, so much that they're willing to kill him or sell him? Here's what God does for that. Nothing. He doesn't have to do anything. This is a selfish, digressing, sin-filled, God-void family. And he just leaves them alone. And by leaving them alone, they incite riots with one another. The story begins with Jacob, who should know better. He is a victim of being uh, favored and not favored by his own family. And instead of bringing that to the Lord and working it out in himself, he does that to his own son, Joseph, and makes him the favored child with 10 older brothers. He incites this riot. He makes them hate this young boy, or they do it on their own as well. And by the time he shows up, shows up at Dotham, 
They have set themselves up for this storyline that leads to this 400 years so that they could become a nation, so that they could be a nation of priests. That's how it happens. It's, a, it's just working the maze backwards, do you see? It's just working the maze backwards. It's like a game, but it's not a game. This Joseph, he's a human soul, and he loves God, and he's being played like a, a pawn or a, a knight or something on a chessboard. He, he, he's, he, the Joseph here, hated by his family, right, uh, sold into slavery, falsely accused and imprisoned, and then, and then forgotten. And then when he's finally found, he finds himself uh, married, and there's no one sitting on his side of the wedding, express, uh, the wedding feast. There's no one there from his house. He has a couple children. There's no announcements to give out, not to his family. There's no grandmothers or grandfathers to come and visit. So how does Joseph feel about being used? Because here's the thing. Joseph is the one that's paying the price for being part of God's redemptive plan. What does Joseph think about this? Look what it says in chapter 45, verse 4. We've read a little bit of this. So Joseph said to his brothers, when they see him for the first time and they realize what they've done, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And then he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. Now, do not, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth. You're supposed to be a redeemed group of people. You're supposed to be sacred. So God sent me here to keep you sacred. Look what it says. And then to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me father of Pharaoh. Look at that, father of Pharaoh and the Lord of all his household and the ruler of all the land of Egypt. Joseph is the only lighthouse in this story. Joseph is the one that is separate, set apart. He stood out. And he would say this. He would say, I'd rather live my life being in this mess, but being part of God's redemptive work than to be in any other place in his life. I'd rather be hated by my brothers, the older brothers, by the way. These are the ones that are supposed to be looking out after him and protecting him, but not that. I would rather be part of Potiphar's property. I'd rather be accused of something I didn't do and be imprisoned. I'd rather have to suffer that than to live a life with the rest of you back home. I would rather be part of God's rescue plan for redemption than to have any kind of peace or comfort outside of that plan. That's what he would say. All that misery, all of that misery in this life, he would say what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us later. Here's the first application. Is that the God you serve? Right there. The one who is sovereign over all of mankind, who works in the context of evil. Who, who is able to do that? If you, if you don't think God can work around and with evil, evil, think about this. What else does he have to work with? 
All of the clay is contaminated. And in that contamination, God says, I can work with that. I can make this work. I did, my prescriptive will is going to happen. My providential will will absolutely take place here. If God can only work in good, with goodness, and when things are with, with men and women that are righteous, then what, what does he have to work with, really? And what kind of God is that, by the way, that's not this God? If, if he is so feeble that he can't work with evil in, in other, in life, in humanity, in your life, if he can't work with the evil to make good things happen, then he's nothing more than a great-grandfather who, who might love you and have good intentions but is powerless. And the God in the Bible, he is a loving warrior king. That's the God of the Bible. The first application is, is that who we, is that who we serve? That, that works within the context of we, evil and hardship in all of humanity and in our life as individually, right? The second part is you can see this in Joseph's life is, is be like Joseph. And when you look at Joseph's life, you can see that he's absolutely surrendered to the sovereign, the sovereignty of God. He surrendered. There's a peace about him that is very difficult to understand. And, but, but he's resting in that. He's resting in the sovereignty of God for all the bad and the evil things he experienced. You can't have what Joseph had without going through what Joseph went through. And in that going through, in the drama that he goes through, the evil that he suffers, he, is, he has become like Christ in his life. He's the Christ figure in this story because he rested, because he rested in the sovereign power and plan of God. This story of Joseph is on a, on a personal level. This is, the, this is the big picture level, but on a personal level, this is a story of Joseph constantly being wrung out and then wrung out again. And then finally, every bit of his will, every bit of his dreams, every bit of his hopes are gone. And now, after two years in this prison, after two years, after he'd been found out to be the dream interpreter, he's chosen to go and talk to Pharaoh. But at that point, he has nothing left but wanting to be used by God. It is something about suffering. If you choose not to let it embitter you, cause you to sulk, become angry. But if you look at Joseph's life, it's this, it's this quiet, peace, rest, and then ultimately love. Love. Because he surrendered. Listen, this path that he was on, this path, it's a Via Della Rosa, friends. It's the same path Jesus was on. Did you know it says in the Bible that Jesus learned obedience through suffering? Jesus learns obedience through suffering. Joseph learned obedience through suffering. There's something about suffering that it, it just it can refine us. If. Sometimes only pain tells the truth. If, if we listen, if we allow it. And so... If this is your life, if you've been on this road and you might be there right now, consider it all a joy, my brothers and sisters. 
Because if you, if you allow yourself to rest in the sovereignty of God, then it can produce in you Christ-likeness in all of your life. It has that potential. And what I love about the Joseph story is not just that he rests in the sovereignty of God in, in the sorrow and in the difficulty, but also in, in his exaltation and in his prosperity. You know, for every hundred men, you know, that can handle adversity, there's only one that can handle success. And this man, Joseph, is able to be a light, a lighthouse, even in his success. This is how it was described that we read before. Listen to the, the triple here. He is the father, he, God has made me the father of Pharaoh, the Lord over all of his household, and the ruler over all the land. And he uses this blessing not as an expression of selfish ambition, but rather as an expression to serve God and his redemptive plan and to serve mankind in any way that he can. That's what he does. Be like Joseph, surrendered in the sovereignty of God, resting in that. So what does that look like, really? I mean, how does it play itself out in our, our souls and how it ends up, how we end up spinning, you know, thinking about this in our heads? Here's, here's where this story on a macro level shows up in our individual lives. Okay? You, in the Bible, this is pervasive throughout primarily two ways of wrestling with the sovereignty of God. One is justice. One is justice. That there will be final justice. And when we have experienced injustice or people uh, that we love suffer from injustice or we just see the world around us and we think, what's going on? We can become anxious or angry or resentful. You can just see a person twist and become that way because they are not trusting in the sovereignty of God. And what that means is you have to believe in the promises of God, in the teachings of Jesus, in the book of Revelation. You don't have to make sense out of the book of Revelation, but you need to know this about that book. It says justice will reign. And you have to believe in those promises, knowing the boundaries of what you can do and what God's in charge of and what he's promised by his nature and by what he said. Here's how it's expressed in Joseph's life. This is a tragic part of their lives. So realizing that their father uh, was dead, Joseph's brother said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong that we, had, that we did to him? So they approached Joseph saying, uh, <clears throat> uh, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong that they did in harming you. Now, therefore, um, please forgive the crime of your servants of God to your father, for the servants of God of your father. And Joseph knows. He knows they're just lying. He knows that they do not understand. They, don't, they can't have what he has because they haven't been through what he's been through. And so it says the next sentence, and Joseph wept as they spoke to him. They, they don't know that He's in his ringing out. He lost any vision of justice happening in his terms, on his timeline, in the way he expected it, and he gave it to the one who's in charge of that. And so he says this. He says to his brothers, but Joseph said to them, you know, drying his eyes, he says, don't be afraid. 
For am I in, the play, in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Jo- Joseph is saying here what is true about the sovereignty of God. This is his plan. You, you have to believe what God says about this. You have to believe what Jesus says about this. You have to believe what Revelation says about this, that there will be justice in the end. And the reason justice is, is left to the end is because we don't know the cost of people's choices yet. Hitler hasn't been judged because Hitler still has disciples. And so he's got, a, oh, he's got an open tab that's still going, and he's going to have to pay that tab. But we don't know what the tab is until end of time. So end of time is the place for final judgment. When you trust God for that, that he's going to work all this out, then you don't have to be angry or anxious or, or resentful. Another way that we show ourselves to be um, trusting God in, in his sovereignty is not just in justice, but in final rewards, in final rewards. Because now the lighthouse, at least in this era, is the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. And when we are to be the person, the the group that is called out and set apart and to be sacred and to be that lighthouse, I told you, lighthouse is a high maintenance thing. It is is work and difficult to serve the sovereign king. And God says that you would have to believe what God says about this and what Jesus has said and what the book of Revelation says about this. That when you serve the king and sacrifice for him, you'll be paid back. You'll be rewarded. And when you serve the church, right, whether it's, I know it's pretty easy to feel like when you're working the parking lot or serving in the infants or the children's ministry or even in the student ministry, and you feel like, yeah, I don't, I'm not getting very much thanks for this. And sometimes even in, in teaching and serving in the adult ministries, you can feel like, I'm not being congratulated very much. You know, I should, in light of how much I'm working, I should be getting more attaboys. Well, first, oops, <laughs> I'm not sure you're doing it for the right reason. If you're doing it for the attaboys. But second, which is our subject matter here, is that you will be celebrated. When you give and you serve the bride of Jesus Christ, you will be rewarded for that. That's what God says. That's what Jesus says. Is that what Revelation says? Look, let's just put it this way. I know everyone that has done good things for my wife, my bride. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm taking names. And it's so much more for Jesus and the way people treat his bride. You'll be rewarded. So when you find yourself giving generously to the church because you feel like you want to be part of this mission of of being different and being separate so that it might draw people to salvation in Jesus Christ alone, when you find yourself giving sacrificially and, and losing opportunities that you could have or stuff or whatever it might be, you find yourself doing, you think, man, that feels foolish sometimes. And God says, and Jesus says, and Revelation says, that's not foolish, that's shrewd investing. You'll get a return on that. And forgiveness, that's an act of a Lighthouse member, right? And sometimes (laughs) you have to remind yourself that you are forgiven and you let go of that because that's where freedom is found. And in this age, especially with the young, the fight for purity and holiness in a world that is decadent and literally mocks purity and holiness. You think 
does this even matter? Is, it, is there any way to get the things that God has put in my heart to desire? Can I obtain those things by being holy and pure and set apart? And God says, and Jesus says, and the book of Revelation says, there's a crown for that. Did you know there's a crown for that? There will be rewards, but the rewards are given at the end. And do you know why rewards are given at the end? Because we don't know the cost of people's decisions and sacrifices yet. Billy Graham has not been rewarded for his life because he is still making disciples. And he's just accruing interest right now. That's what it means to rest in the sovereignty of God. That's what it means to grasp this and enjoy this. It means justice is God. He will repay. It means you will be rewarded for the life that you live that is set apart, holy, for the purpose of the kingdom of God. It means you are not alone. If in the story of Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord blessed Joseph, it says this, this, this says, though it looks like our world is out of control, it is not. Because God is using the free will of man, as decadent and depraved as we are, And he's getting his will done, his providential will to bring salvation to all men, for them to respond in any way they choose. So ultimately, we would all bow our knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the the purpose of life. If you find yourself absolutely, completely surrendered to that purpose, You would rather be part of that suffering than to ever experience the fulfillment of your own dreams. God says, Jesus says in his invitation, give me all your dreams so that I might give you my dream for you. Trade up. Is this the God you serve? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know, when we step back and we look at history, the history of one man, we can see, oh, you you know, you're right. I see that in him. Lord, I'd ask that you would help your spirit help us see that in us, in the lonely times, in the rejected times, when we find ourselves, uh, we think family and friend are should be maybe supporting us and they're not, they're rejecting us, or maybe that we find ourselves unjustly accused, whatever it might be, our, our own Via Della Rosa. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us see that that is the path that Jesus crawled so that he might learn to obey. And I, it's, the, it's the path of Joseph. It is the path of every saint. So, Lord, would you help us learn how to trust and be at peace in your sovereignty? in hard times and in blessed times, for justice and for rewards, for the feeling of being alone 
and helpless in a hostile world, for feeling like the world is out of control, but it's not. Lord, give us that peace so that we might be generous with forgiveness and bountiful in our love with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.